I tried to imagine what it would have been like to be kicked out of Eden. So I pictured the mountain garden, as Barry describes, the mountain garden of Eden with a wall around it and a door that opens, and I'm looking in, and there are the two cherubim, the two mighty angels, it says in Genesis. One of them's got Adam by the arm, and one of them's got Eve by the arm, and they're escorting them out like they just got fired, right? Escorting to the front door taking them out the gate, and you can look over there. I'm looking over their shoulders, and I'm seeing all the animals looking wide-eyed with what's happening, and there's even God standing back there like a father that just kicked his son or daughter out of the house. And Adam and Eve, still uncomfortable in their new clothing, are taken to the front door. The door is slammed. They're left on their own, and behind them, what they have left behind them is unmatched beauty and peace. And what's behind them in the garden is joy and security and holiness and rest. And along with all these wonderful characteristics that they left behind, justice was also left behind. You know, almost immediately, when the world of humans started to live outside the Garden of Eden. Just injustice began to grow at a pretty frightening pace. Cain kills Abel. By Genesis chapter 6, it had grown so bad. In one of the most remarkable statements in all of the scriptures, it says in Genesis chapter 6 that God actually got to the point. Because of all human beings, all the inclinations of their heart all the time were inclined to evil, God said, I regret having made mankind. And so he sent a flood, and the flood was like a purge. It was like a do-over, but it didn't. Because deception continued, and theft, and slavery, and total disregard of vulnerable people became commonplace. And as evidence of this, there's that infamous Sodom and Gomorrah proof that the world had lost its sense of justice and unrighteousness. And I don't know what you think of when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you think of immorality. But the prophet Ezekiel put his finger on the problem of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, the reason why you were judged, Sodom and Gomorrah, is because you were, watch this, unkind to the poor. That's what Ezekiel said. Of course, the people of God ultimately found themselves in the swamp of injustice in Egypt. And for 400 years... They lived with a sense of deep injustice. They were as far from Eden as you could be. But as we've seen in the storyline, God brings, brought, the people, brought his people out of Egypt and takes them to the foot of this new mountain, Mount Sinai, where he begins to, begins to give them a picture of what could be, how they could, in essence, return to Eden. We know this portion of the scriptures as the law. Now, Barry set us up in the last two weeks understanding the, the, this concept. He said this, the law is not actually irrelevant to our lives. In fact, it's a foundational aspect to the entire story of the Bible. He also said the Israelites were being invited into a way of living that would bring them into, that would bring them life, joy, peace, provision, and the very presence of God. And he said, the story behind the entire law is this, God's relentless faithfulness to bring humanity back into the mountain garden of his presence, back to fullness of life. 
So he set us up in the last two weeks, gave us the foundation of this series, and for the next four weeks, we are going to do a survey of the law, and we are going to look at four grand themes that dominate pretty much the rest of the law. Holiness, sacrifice, Sabbath, and today I want to explore the theme of justice in the law. So, got a Bible? Grab a Bible. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 20. If you have your own, great. If you don't, great. We have house Bibles should be around here and uh, pick one up and turn to page 163. And welcome to those of you who are watching online. Hope you can join us by looking at the scriptures with me. We're going to be in several different places in the uh, the law, in the Old Testament uh, today. Deuteronomy 16, 20, verse 20. Let's start with this verse. Let true justice prevail, so you may live and occupy the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Let true justice prevail. Now this word justice, we'll stop there. This word justice is one of two Hebrew words that um, we've tra- in English we've translated justice, but there are two Hebrew words to describe justice. This is the first one. This is the Hebrew word tzedek or tzedek. It means ethical rightness, legal rightness, moral rightness, but it has this tone of charity or reaching out in justice to do the right thing for people who need it. Now, what tzedek implied was a culture without exploitation of people for any reason. It implied freedom from unfairness, freedom from inequity, freedom from want. And it was a culture, if a culture lived tzedek or justice the way God expected them to live, it would obligate them to do the right thing for people. This is one of the main characteristics of the new Eden, of the kingdom of God. Now I want you to see how important this was to God. The actual literal translation of this verse is tzedek, tzedek, justice, justice. That's how it starts. We could literally interpret it, you shall pursue just justice. And God states absolutely clearly, this is a condition for a satisfying life. Look what it says uh, again in verse 20. He said, let true justice prevail, so what? So that you may live. I mean, you are not going to live until you let justice prevail. He says, and occupy the land. You're not going to occupy the land unless you let justice prevail. All right, so what does this justice look like? Well, We're going to see the second word, which brings a little clarity. Turn back to chapter 10, Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. And we're going to get some clarity on what it looks like in uh, played out. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of, excuse me, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. Verse 18, he ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. Here's the second word. He show, the second Hebrew word, justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to foreigners for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of 
of Egypt. If the first Hebrew word was uh, tzedek, this is the second Hebrew word, mishpat, which means to treat people with fairness and equity regardless of social status. It, and this is a heavy emphasis on actually what you do. This word shows up 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And most of those times, or many of those times, it's coupled with what Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, refers to as the quartet of the vulnerable. Orphans, widows, foreigners, and the poor. So this word mishpat is almost always equated with one of those four groups of people. Orphans, uh, these are people who are marginalized. They're on the margins of society. There are people that are at risk because they don't have the uh, visible support of a community or a family. There are people who, uh, who lack obvious means of sustenance in this world. Orphans, for instance, they don't have a father, they don't have a family, and so they're unprotected. Widows, in this culture, if, there, if you became a widow and you lost your husband, you lost your, your very identity and you lost your foundation in, in, in the community. Foreigners, this is an interesting word, foreigners, it shows up a lot in the law. It is the Hebrew word ger, and it's referring not just to people who are from a different nation or a different people group, it's referring to displaced people. The ger, okay, modern day uh, equivalent. Uh, I don't know if you're following anymore. We should be following what's happening in Syria because still on a daily basis in Syria, people, ger, resident aliens, are being displaced because of the, of the unrest and because of the war. I think they're, they're probably in the millions by now, people who have to have had to uproot their lives and move someone else, somewhere else. In the ancient Near East, when, when God brought the law in the ancient Near East, this was, um, this was normal because this country went to war against this country and this king took on this king. And any time you bring war, any time you bring unrest, somebody's going to become a refugee. Somebody's going to be uprooted to have to move somewhere else. That's the ger. That's who they're being referred to here, the, the foreigners. They are the people that had, did not have means of support. They, we could call them, we could actually translate this refugee or resident aliens. And of course, the poor have no resources to live by. Uh, and so the quartet of the vulnerable is what God had in mind when he said, you must pursue mishpat justice for the people who have no social power. And God makes, look, look at it again, verse 18. Look, God says in verse 18 how he actually feels about this. He, God, ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He, God that is, shows love to the foreigners, the ger, living among you, and gives them food and clothing. So you too. It's like, all right, I'm not asking you to do this, God. I'm not asking you to do this because it's the right thing to do. I'm asking you to do this because it's the thing I do, God says. It's the thing that breaks my heart. It's the thing that I feel. And, if, and God is saying to his people, if I feel this way, you should too. If mishpat is at the top of my mind, when I look at people who are marginalized and vulnerable, it should be at the top of your mind too. You must show love to these people. So I, I'm going to get a little technical here for a second, but I, I think it's important because these two words, uh, tzedek 
and mishpat, or justice and justice, they, they're important in their, in their uniqueness too. So mishpat is, let's call it rectifying justice. It's the thing you do to respond when you see someone who is vulnerable, when you see someone who is hurting, when you see someone who is experiencing injustice. It is doing the things that are necessary to bring life to an orphan, to bring health and peace to a widow, uh, welcoming a resident alien or refugee into your home and life, or providing tangible support, support for the poor. That's mishpat. It's justice that fixes things. Now, tzedek is different. Justice, if, if mishpat is rectifying justice, tzedek is primary justice. It is the atmosphere. It is the structure of justice in a family or a community or a nation. It is attitudinal. So when a, let's talk about your family. Let's say that you've determined that your family is going to be a tzedek family. You're going to be a family that's characterized by justice and care for the marginalized and vulnerable. If you've decided that as a family, here's what I can promise you. Because that is the value. That is the value of your heart. When someone who would fall into that vulnerable category finds their way into your family, they will do this. They will relax because they'll, they know they're in a place where they'll be loved. When, the, when a church takes on this tzedek attitude of justice, when a person walks through our doors, it is my prayer that this is dominant at Grace Church, and I believe it is. And I'm not talking just about the care center. I'm talking about our worship experiences. I'm talking about your small groups. When somebody is marginalized and vulnerable, and a church or a small group demonstrates and lives out this tzedek justice, they will relax and they will feel loved and cared for. Do you see the difference between primary justice, which creates the atmosphere, and rectifying justice, which fixes the wrongs? This is a characteristic of Eden, the new Eden. It's the characteristic of the kingdom of God. N.T. Wright, author, said it this way, justice is one of the echoes of a voice. He says it's the voice of Jesus calling us to follow him into God's new world. Now, I know that I just looked at, we just looked at two verses. I could give you verse after verse. We could go through Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and look at the law, and we would hit verse after verse that emphasizes. Let me just show you a couple of more. I'm not just cherry-picking these verses. Deuteronomy 27, 19, look at the screen. Cursed is anyone who denies justice to foreigners, orphans, or widows, and all the people will reply, amen. This is in a, a section where Moses is reiterating the law, and he says, cursed is those who, those who don't extend justice, and all the people will reply, amen. I mean, this is taking it to a rather intense level. If you don't show justice to the vulnerable, you're cursed. Well, let that one sink in a little bit. And then here's another one, Leviticus uh, 19.34. Treat foreigners like native-born Israelites and love the ger, love the refugee, love the alien, the resident alien, as you love yourself. And it doesn't just stop in the law. It's not just like it's in the law. I mean, it bleeds over into the rest of scriptures. The psalm writer said this in Psalm 146, the Lord protects the foreigners among us. He, God himself, cares for the orphans and widows. 
And the prophets, of course, got into the action. Zechariah 7, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Judge fairly, show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress widows. Do not oppress orphans or foreigners and the poor. There's the quartet of the vulnerable again. And Jesus, of course, went even one step further. As he was talking to people who were following him, he painted a picture of the future. He pictured a time in the future where all the people were gathered at the foot of God, and Jesus himself looks out over the crowd and radically identifies himself with the vulnerable. He says this, uh, listen folks, uh, I was hungry and you didn't give me justice, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink, no mishpat for me. I was a stranger, I was a girl, I was a refugee and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison. You didn't visit me. You didn't give me justice. I tell you the truth, he said. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers, the most vulnerable, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. We can't dance around. I mean, this is... This is not peripheral stuff. We're talking about the very heart of the God of the universe. One other thing from the mouth of Jesus, I don't know if you'll find this interesting. I found it interesting. Um, So, you know when, um, I talked talked earlier about the the cherubim that that were keeping Adam and Eve and any humans from coming back into the Garden of Eden, right? They're apparently, it says in Genesis they were mighty cherubim. I don't know if they had flaming swords, but you're not going to get past them, okay? So the angels, the cherubim, kept people out of Eden. Well, apparently, and I think Barry introduced this a couple of weeks ago, apparently that the, the, uh, when the temple was designed and it had this holy place, holiest place where God dwelled, and between that holiest place and outside, there was this, they, they made a, a big curtain, and on the curtain, they embroidered, is embroidered the right word? They embroidered angels on, on the curtain. And the reason why angels, why were, why were angels embroidered on the curtain? Well, they were to imitate the cherubim that kept people out of Eden, right? But then when Jesus died, when Jesus was crucified, uh, apparently the story tells us that the, the curtain split in two, which meant, okay, no longer are there cherubim, no longer are, are people kept out of the presence of God. People can now re-enter Eden, right? That's a beautiful story. Okay, that's the setup to tell you there was a moment where Jesus, Jesus didn't, um, he wasn't mean very often. I don't know if he was ever mean, but he certainly was direct with one group of people, and that was the religious leaders who were all about themselves. Listen to what he said to them. Keep in mind the cherubim thing. You can look on the screen. Woe to you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. Now look at this next phrase. For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. Woe to you, hypocrites. You ignore the important aspect of the law, justice. 
mercy, and faith. So he's saying, hey guys, you're taking the place of the cherubim. You've decided because you know what's best and you know the rules, you're going to be the one, you're going to station yourself between the people and God. And you're not going to let anybody into the kingdom of God. And all the rule keeping, you're keep, the one thing you forgot to keep is justice. You have neglected mishpat. You've neglected tzedek. You aren't even entering into the kingdom of God yourself. The point I'm trying to make is the, the application for us is obvious. I mean, isn't it? Right? It's unambiguous. The kingdom of God... Eden is a space that's full. It's teeming with justice. And it'd be our responsibility to help create that, to own it, to live it, and stand for it. I'm going to wrap this up in a minute, but before I do, I've got to create some problems. All right? We're going to take a left-hand turn. So everyone gear up for this. Here we go. Because I've just, hopefully I've made the case for a sense of justice throughout the whole law. Well, we have a problem in one part of the law. Would you turn to Exodus 21, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Here's the setting. In Exodus 21, it follows Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. God has just given the Ten Commandments to Moses, and then, starting in Exodus 21, he starts to delineate or list the rest of the law. Look how it starts. Exodus 21.1. If you buy a Hebrew slave, oh, what, what? Uh, he may serve for no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he'll owe, owe you nothing for his freedom. If he was single when he became your slave, he shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must be freed with him. Oh, all right, wait. Endorsing slavery. Oh, it gets worse. Look at verse 4. If his master gave him a wife, talking about the slave, while he was a slave, and they had sons or daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year, but his wife and children will still belong to his master. Uh. Oh, it gets worse. Verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, okay, she will not be freed at the end of six years as the men are. Oh, and just one more, verse 20. If a man beats his male or female slave with a club and the slave dies as a result, the owner must be punished. But if the slave recovers within a day or two, then the owner shall not be punished since the slave is his property. Okay, all right. This is in the law. This law that is supposedly all about justice. <laughs> what do we do with it? Do you know that what I just read to you is one of the reasons why people walk away from the faith and why they reject the Bible? Because of this? I had a hard time actually saying this out loud to myself this week, but I realize there are parts of the scripture that are repugnant to me. This is repugnant. So what do we do with it? Because it is completely, utterly, it seems to be completely, utterly 
um, opposed to the sense of justice which dominates the rest of the law. God, I hope I get this right. The fourth time. Stay with me. I'm going to try to explain. Believe it or not, first of all, what I just read to you was an upgrade from the ancient Near East. That was an upgrade. In other words, it was so bad in the ancient Near East, um, the slaves were routinely killed. Routine, I mean, it was purely, simply, they were property. They were treated like a, an animal or a farm implement. So this was an upgrade. Now, that doesn't help me much because it doesn't seem like much of an upgrade. Amen, right? doesn't feel like an upgrade. So I have to step back. I do not understand. I do not understand why God allowed this. So I have to step back and we have to look at I'm going to call it the moral arc of the scripture or the trajectory. And we can see when you pay attention to the whole storyline of scripture that what seems to be abhorrent here was better than their surrounding culture. And eventually, even when we get into the New Testament, the attitudes towards slavery were starting to change, were changing in massive ways, maybe exemplified by Colossians 3.11, where Paul said this, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. That is a real significant ethical upgrade because now slaves are equivalent with everyone else. Even though it did not outlaw slavery, it was clear God's perspective on the slave as a human being. So I wanted to show you the ethical arc or the moral arc of Scripture is pointing in that direction. Now, unfortunately, we get to the end of the book of Acts, the end of the actual storyline of the Scripture, we're not where we need to be. As a matter of fact, um, what is horrible about those, one of the most horrible things about that Exodus 21 passage I read is that in the 18th 19, and the 19th century in the United States of America, there were pastors preaching Exodus 21 from their pulpits to justify slavery. It's a horrible hermeneutic. But they were taking it literally and justifying slavery, and we know that people were killed, lives were destroyed, generations were impacted as a result of that horrible, horrible time. It took, the moral arc of scripture was moving towards the elimination of slavery, but it took people like William Wilberforce and other abolitionists to finally get us to the point where we can look at slavery, even though it's not totally gone today, look at it as uh, an anathema to humanity. Are there a lot of things that you're anxious to sit down and talk with God about some point? I mean, I'm keeping a list. I'm glad that it's going to be eternity because I, I think it's going to take that long for me to go through my list. And near the top of my list will be this question. Why God, when it seemed like you had a chance at Mount Sinai, why did you not abolish slavery altogether? I got nothing. 
Because I don't know the mind of God. All I see is the ethical arc of Scripture. I hold on to that. I also hold on to what I said earlier, that everywhere else you look in the Scripture and in the law, it is nothing but rectifying justice and primary justice for the vulnerable and the lost and the marginalized. The cry of justice, even though there's this confusing thing about slavery, the cry for justice is an echo of the voice from Eden calling out from behind the walls of the garden. You can hear it in the voice of Jesus himself when he said one day, when he first time showed up at the synagogue, and was able to speak as a young man. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's the voice that justice is an echo of. And that voice is why this church, Grace Church, is unalterably committed to Sedek and Mishpat. This church will never not be committed to the idea of justice for the marginalized and the vulnerable. We are kingdom people. We are Eden people. We are not content to wait for our souls to be rescued while we live for Fat City. We are not content to just sanctify the American dream. That's not why this church exists. This church is compelled to pursue our corporate destiny as we push one another toward a return to Eden, where the most vulnerable of society are protected, where the most marginalized of our world are brought near, and where the most oppressed of humanity are set free. We, this church, will open the doors of the kingdom. We will not bar them from the doors. We will open the doors of the kingdom and we will invite the vulnerable in. We will, to as much as the power that we have in us, we will return to Eden where justice rolls on like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream.